Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Dr. Peter Lightheart's talk, The Old Testament as Story, from our audio collection titled, Histories and Stories, Trinity Festival. If you enjoy the talk and want to hear more, I highly recommend Dr. Lightheart's Old Testament survey, A House for My Name, that can be found on canonpress.com. Let's open with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for this occasion when we can stop to study your word, to consider your great acts throughout history. We thank you for what you've done for your people. We thank you for what you continue to do. And we pray that your grace and your spirit would continue to be poured out on us. We pray for this uh, hour and for the coming hours this afternoon and throughout this week that all we do would bring honor to the name of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. The uh, topic for the week from the other speakers is going to be uh, biographies from Old Testament characters. It's about Old Testament history. This is typically a history conference, but this year the, uh, all the historical figures that are being covered are from the Old Testament. And I'm, I've been assigned the task of giving an overview of the Old Testament in about 50 minutes. Uh, and what I want to suggest as a way to orient ourselves to that is the proposition that the Old Testament is, is a collection of biographies in one sense, it's many other things, but it's a collection of biographies. But I want to focus on the fact that the Old Testament is a single biography. It is not just a, a collection of individual biographies of the great heroes of the faith, but it's a, a biography of the one great hero, Jesus Christ. That's the way that Jesus himself interpreted the Old Testament when he rose from the dead and on uh, the Easter, the first Easter day, the first resurrection day, he appeared a number of times to disciples and whenever he appeared to them, according to Luke's account, he told them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. We know the story of the disciples who are fleeing Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes alongside them, begins walking with them. And as he's walking with them, they d detail to him everything uh, that everything in the gospel story, they know the whole story of the gospel. Uh, they know about Jesus' death on the cross, they know about his resurrection, but it's not until Jesus teaches them from the Old Testament what this all means, and actually not until he sits and breaks bread with them that they recognize him for who he is and that they understand what's been said. And Jesus rebukes them in the course of that teaching uh, concerning their ignorance of the Old Testament. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, he says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the things, all the scriptures, sorry, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I have a dilemma here throughout the talks. I can either see you with my glasses on or see my script with my glasses off, and I'll probably do a bit of both. That's what he says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He rebukes them for not understanding the scriptures, which talk about the sufferings and the glory of Christ. And then later in the same chapter of Luke, in Luke 24, when he appears to the 11, when the two disciples on the road to Emmaus have uh, hurried back to Jerusalem with the news that they've seen the Lord, uh, Jesus appears again in the midst of the 11 and with those two disciples. And he again teaches them concerning the scriptures and concerning himself in the scriptures. And he says this, these are the words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, 
and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. If you ask Jesus what the Old Testament is about, he would no doubt say many things, but centrally Jesus says that the Old Testament is about him. It's his story, it's his biography, it's the story of the sufferings and the glory of Christ. And that's been a perspective that the church has uh, taken of the Old Testament throughout its history. Uh, but that's true in a number of senses that I want to develop this afternoon. It's true, uh, first of all, in the sense that Jesus' biography is bound up with the biography and the history of his people. The New Testament actually begins with the genealogy that traces Jesus' own history back to Abraham and to David and through the exile and begins the story of Jesus by telling us about the history of his people. Uh, you'll find this in biographies generally, the biographies of uh, all great, uh, uh, if you read a biography of a great uh, military hero or a great literary figure, uh, they often begin several generations before the person is born giving the background of the, uh, of the family and the history. And that's what happened, is happening with Jesus as well. So the Old Testament is Jesus' story partly in the sense that it's the story of the people into whom he's born. You can't really understand why Jesus is appears at all. You can't understand why Jesus does what he does. You can't understand why, uh, he, uh, why he's come or what he intends to do unless you have some sense of what's gone on before. Typically, historically, the church has interpreted the Old Testament as the story of Jesus by interpreting the Old Testament typologically. And that is, they've read the Old Testament and looked at the stories and the, the events and the persons of the Old Testament looking for what I've called on your outline, snapshots of Jesus. They're looking for small events, figures of the Old Testament, institutions of the Old Testament that somehow reveal the coming of Christ, that foreshadow what Jesus is going to do. And we can uh, just stick with the New Testament and see that this is a typical way within the New Testament of reading the Old Testament. This is not some strange kind of reading that was developed by uh, Greek-influenced church fathers after the New Testament ended. This is the way that the apostles read the New Testament. This is one of the ways that the apostles applied what Jesus himself had taught them. He begins with Moses and goes through all the prophets, teaching them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And when Paul hears that, when Paul learns that, that way of reading the Old Testament, he goes back and he finds all these foreshadowings of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, the, uh, major, the major persons of the Old Testament, the major events of the Old Testament, the major institutions of the Old Testament are all explicitly said to be types of Christ in the, in the, in the, by the New Testament. Jesus is the last Adam, according to Romans 5, whose obedience overturns the disobedience of Adam. He brings life and righteousness where Adam brought death and sin. Jesus is the greater Abel, whose, blood is shed on, whose innocent blood is shed on the earth and whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's the son of Abraham, which means that he's the greater Isaac. And Hebrews talks about uh, Abraham receiving Isaac back in a type after he had sacrificed him or had begun to sacrifice him. Paul tells the same, uh, says the same thing when he compares uh, Jesus and Israel to Isaac and Ishmael. Jesus is the true son of Abraham who comes in the place of his older brother Ishmael. Jesus is the new Moses whose words are uh, come with a greater threat, a more intense threat than the words of the first Moses who comes with a new law, applying the law in its depths. Jesus is a new Samuel. Jesus is the son of David. He's a man who has greater wisdom than the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus is a prophet like Jeremiah and so on and so on. And you can find all over the New Testament explicit statements about types of Christ, types of Jesus, foreshadowings of Jesus' life and ministry in the Old Testament. In that sense, 
the story of the Old Testament is the biography of Jesus. Sometimes these analogies between Jesus and Old Testament figures are uh, implicit rather than explicit. Uh, that's true, for example, of what Luke says about Jesus in Luke 2. He implicitly compares Jesus with Samuel. He doesn't say Jesus is a new Samuel. But he as much as says that by the way that he describes Jesus' work. He says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And that's a virtual quotation from 1 Samuel 2, 21 and 26, uh, where uh, Samuel is said to uh, do the same. He's said to grow in wisdom just as Jesus did. Jesus is a greater Samuel. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us that in so many words, but he does tell us implicitly. Or when Jesus calls the disciples from their fishing nets and says, come and follow me, and they drop their nets and go and follow Jesus. Jesus is playing the role of Elijah, calling Elisha from his plowing, and the disciples are playing the role of Elisha, who are going to, they're going to receive a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, a double portion of the spirit of Jesus uh, as they follow Jesus and as he ascends into heaven. You could, you could play that out at a number of places in the gospel story where Jesus is playing the role of Elijah and his disciples are a kind of collective Elisha. Or when Jesus battles Satan as he does throughout the gospel story, he's doing that as Joshua, Yeshua, as Jesus, the greater uh, example of the conqueror of the Old Testament. But not only persons, but also offices and institutions of the Old Testament are types of Christ. And again, much of this is explicit in the New Testament. It doesn't have, it's not something that uh, requires any kind of uh, fiddling with the text. It's what the New Testament tells us. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a prophet, a greater prophet. That's what the uh, Jews say about him as he's uh, going through his ministry. They describe him as a prophet. Jesus is a greater king than David. Uh, he comes in the name of the Lord. He is proclaimed as king in his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He talks about a kingdom, and that's the central message that he proclaims. Uh, Jesus, so Jesus fulfills all of those offices of the Old Testament. Jesus is also the, ta the tabernacle, the living tabernacle, the location of God's dwelling with his people. He is the living temple, according to John 2. Jesus is the greater sacrifice in his death. He's explicitly said to be a sin offering in Romans 8. And elsewhere in Hebrews, for example, there's a whole lot of, uh, there are statements about Jesus fulfilling the Day of Atonement and other offerings and sacrifices of the Old Testament. So institutions and rituals of the Old Testament are foreshadowings of Jesus Christ. And in that way too, the Old Testament is the biography of Jesus. It's part of Jesus' story. Jesus' ministry also fulfills the Old Testament by fulfilling the events of the Old Testament. At the beginning of Matthew, Matthew tells us that Jesus flees from Jesus with his family, as, when he's an infant, flees from Jerusalem where Herod is killing babies. And Matthew quotes from uh, Hosea 11:1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. It's a statement about a prophecy about the Exodus. And Jesus is in undergoing an Exodus from Israel to find safety in Egypt. It's an ironic Exodus, but there's an explicit connection with the original Exodus. According to Luke, there's an exodus that's going to take place in his death and in his resurrection. Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. Jesus goes into exile outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem, and suffers the exile of Israel. Jesus is like a greater Cyrus at the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, sending his disciples out to the nations as Cyrus sent, uh, his, sent the Jews back from Babylonian exile into, uh, into the land. I've said this, I'm, I'm speaking rather rapidly, but that's to get as much in as I can, because this is really just uh, the surface of what the New Testament explicitly says about Jesus' 
biography in the Old Testament about the explicit statements about types and shadows and figures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And once we see this, once we see the New Testament writers interpreting the Old Testament this way and plundering the Old Testament for these snapshots of Jesus, these uh, types and shadows of Christ, then it's not a stretch to begin extrapolating from what they give us explicitly. It's not a stretch to go from saying David is a type of Christ, Jesus is a new David, to saying that Jesus will somehow in his life recapitulate, fulfill, relive the life history of David. That's not much of a stretch. It's not just uh, Jesus is David in uh, statically, abstractly, but Jesus' history, Jesus' story is foreshadowed by the story of David. And we could go through a great number of examples of how that's the case. Uh, David, of course, is ordained, anointed as king while there's still a king on the throne and is persecuted by Saul, is persecuted by members of his own family. Uh, he has to endure trials before he receives his kingdom. Uh, he is the suffering king who ascends to the throne after many persecutions, just as Jesus does. Uh, the story of Absalom and David is uh, uh, very closely tied to the sufferings of Jesus. If, if you follow the... Um, the, the uh, uh, flight of David out of Jerusalem, he's following the very same footsteps, or I should say Jesus later follows the same footsteps out of Jerusalem to the east, across the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron Brook, up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes. That's the, that's the journey that Jesus takes when he goes up to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the journey that David had already taken. Uh, that whole series of events in Second uh, Samuel is a foreshadowing, not just David and Jesus, but David's story and Jesus' story match up in details. And once we recognize that, not only the static David-Jesus kind of connection, but David's story with Jesus' story, then it's not a stretch to start looking for places in the Old Testament that aren't explicitly mentioned in the New Testament that are also foreshadowings of Jesus. So we can take the step from Jesus as the greater David, which is explicit in the Old Testament, to Jesus as the greater Joseph, which is never stated in the Old Testament. I think Joseph is one of the figures that somebody's talking about. Is that you, Steve? I'll stop then. Okay. Um, they, uh, Steve is going to tell us all about, Pastor Wilkins is going to tell us all about how Joseph's story is a foreshadowing of Jesus. But that's, once we see that this is the way that the, the New Testament writers read the Old Testament, that's not a stretch, even though there's no explicit statement in the New Testament that says Jesus is the new Joseph. At least there's none that is uncontroversial. There may be some that uh, are taken that way. And once you make that kind of uh, step, then it's not a stretch to start uh, reading the Old Testament and passages in the Old Testament that don't look uh, like they have much to do at all with Jesus as foreshadowings of the work and the life of Jesus. Uh, in my King's commentary, I talk about Jehu as a type of Christ, which is a stretch for some people. Uh, some people can't see how Jehu, who spends most of his time deceiving people and slaughtering people, is anything like Jesus. Well, the hint, the clue, one of the clues, is that when, Je when Jehu is proclaimed as king, his men, uh, his soldiers, take off their robes and cast them on the ground, uh, and jo Jehu walks over those uh, garments and is proclaimed king. That's in 2 Kings 9. That's the only place in the Old Testament where anyone lays down a robe uh, before another figure and proclaims him as king. That doesn't happen. But it happens to Jesus later on. And what does Jesus do after he's been proclaimed king, riding on a donkey over the uh, cast-off robes of his disciples? He goes into the temple and condemns the temple. What, is Je what has Jehu done? 
Jehu uh, walks over the robes of his men, rides into Samaria in order to condemn and destroy a temple. Happens to be a temple of Baal at that point, but when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem has become uh, no better than a temple of Baal. It might as well be a temple of Baal. And he says, not one stone will be left upon another. He is the greater Jehu. That doesn't mean that everything that Jehu does matches up with what Jesus does. That's something I want to address in just a moment. But Jehu is a foreshadowing of part of what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to come as the conqueror, as the, uh, as the hero like Jehu, to condemn the temple that has become uh, filled with idolatry and to destroy it. It's often thought that uh, typology of this sort is kind of a secondary mode of interpretation. The first thing we want to do when we read the Old Testament is to read it literally and get the history down and get the grammar down. And then maybe on top of that is kind of a rhetorical flourish. We start talking and thinking typologically. But I think that's exactly opposite of the way the New Testament writers read the Old Testament. Typology is fundamental. It's foundational. Uh, in fact, I, th I would submit that the entire Christology of the New Testament makes no sense except on a typological reading of the Old Testament. What does the New Testament say about Jesus? What is the Christology of the New Testament? Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the Son of God. What does Son of God mean? The Son of God in the Old Testament context means that he's the anointed one, that he's the king, that he's the son of David. Jesus is the son of man. What does that mean in the Old Testament? It means he's the last Adam. That's another way of saying the same thing. Uh, Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a prophet. All of the, all of the New Testament statements about the person of Christ, uh, all of the New Testament statements about Christology are types. They're based on types, on a typological reading of the Old Testament. And I think that uh, uh, even ethical and uh, uh, and um, ethical exhortations in the New Testament are drawn from that kind of reading of the Old Testament. This is not a secondary gloss on a literal reading of the Old Testament. This is the way the New Testament teaches us to read the Old, teaches us to read the Old Testament as a biography of Jesus, an unfinished biography, as I want to say in a moment, but it is the bi biography of Jesus and God writing with human history in the way that an author writes with words, uh, foreshadows what's coming uh, in the events of the Old Testament. That's all, as a, uh, that's all to the good. That kind of typological reading that is looking for snapshots of Jesus in the Old Testament is a good thing. But it's not all that typology is about. And if we stop there, I think we're missing one of the central ways that the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Jesus or the, for the Old Testament is the biography of Jesus. Uh, to just find isolated snapshots of Jesus in the Old Testament and then try to match them up with what the New Testament says about Jesus. Not, I think that's, that's there. That's in the text. I'm not condemning that. But if that's all we do, then I think we're missing the main point of typology. Typology is not uh, about how words work. It's not about how language works. Typology is about how history works. It's about how God has arranged history with various kinds of foreshadowings, various kinds of uh, previews of what he's going to do next. I use the phrase non-identical repetition, uh, a, a mouthful of a phrase uh, in, uh, uh, in my outline that you have, in my notes that you have, but that's, that's what typology is. Typology is non-identical repetition. It's repetition of events, repetition of persons, repetition of offices and institutions that are not identical to each other, that are not the same as uh, one another. Jesus is a priest, but he's not a priest quite like Aaron. 
He's a prophet, but he's greater than any prophet that came before. He's identical, I mean, he's, he's repeating the office of prophet, but it's not an identical repetition. That's how history works. That's what, that's what history is about. That's the pattern of history, and it rep replicates, I think, the pattern of the Trinity. God repeats non-identically as Father, Son, and Spirit. God is Father. God is also Son, and all the attributes of God the Father are also attributes of God the Son, and yet God the Father and God the Son are not identical to each other. There's real difference between them, and that's, uh, that uh, character of the triune God is revealed in the way history works. So typology is a, is a, a way of reading history and not just a way of reading a text. It's uh, a way of looking at how God has worked in history, how God has revealed his triune character in the course of history. And so to understand typology fully, it's not enough just to find isolated static snapshots of Jesus in the Old Testament and find correlations in the New Testament. We also have to look at the whole thrust and storyline and dynamic of the Old Testament story and see how that is a preparation for the final act in the gospel story. We have to look at the entire Old Testament as the biography of Jesus that leads us up right to the last event of that biography. Well, how does that happen? How does the Old Testament lead us to expect or lead us to the brink of the New Testament revelation of God in Jesus Christ and in the gospel story? One of the ways it does that is by repeatedly showing us the failures of all the saviors and all the messiahs and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is ultimately a story of failure. It's uh, an unfinished story that ends with hope for the future, but if you just stop with Malachi, or if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, you stop with Second Chronicles. It's an unfinished story. You're waiting for something else to happen. All of the greatest figures of the Old Testament, all of the greatest institutions of the Old Testament fail to bring final salvation. They fail to bring a new creation that God has promised. Moses was one of the greatest, he was the greatest of the prophets. Moses was one of the greatest leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. He led Israel out of Egypt, of course. He delivered the law at Sinai. He led Israel through the wilderness to the brink of the promised land. Uh, but even Moses, great as he was, could not write on tablets of the human heart. He received tablets of stone written by the finger of God, but Moses was not capable of writing that law on the hearts of men. We want that, that's, and that needs to happen if people are going to be obedient and faithful. If Israel's going to be faithful, it's not enough to have tablets of stone. They need something more. Moses', uh, Moses ministry was great and successful in many ways, but ultimately it doesn't bring the final salvation that Israel's looking for. Israel's sacrificial system is also incomplete and a kind of failure. It brought Israel near. It brought Israel close to the Lord. Through offering sacrifice, through various kinds of cleansing rites, they could enter into the courts of the Lord, and the Lord didn't wipe them out. They could come near to him, kind of near, not entirely near. They never went into the most holy place. They never went into the direct presence of God. Uh, the priests did that, of course, once a year, but Israel didn't camp out in the presence of God. That was, uh, that's an incompletion. And also, the, there's the incompletion of the fact that sacrifices have to be repeated, as Hebrews tells us. The fact that the Day of Atonement takes place this year and it's going to take place next year and the next and so on for thousands of years tells us that the Day of Atonement hasn't fully achieved what it intends. Atonement hasn't been made yet if we have to do it all over again. So the Old Testament sacrificial system le leaves us waiting for a final atonement, one that's going to bring an end to all atonement, going to bring an end to all sacrifice. 
uh, and the uh, uh, sacrificial system is incomplete and in some senses a failure. The Davidic line is a failure in an even more dramatic and obvious sense. From the time of David and Solomon, you have the high point of Israel's monarchy in their days. You have some, um, some uh, lesser peaks uh, later on in Israel's, uh, the history of Israel and Judah. From but from David and Solomon, you have the, the pinnacle, and they're right at the beginning of the history of the monarchy, of course. And right after Solomon's reign, the kingdom is divided. It's reunited, kind of, uh, after, uh, in the days of Josiah, and reunited, kind of, after the exile, but it never achieves the kind of glory that it had under Solomon. And by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, the monarchy is gone. It's not there anymore. There is no king uh, who is a descendant of David. Israel's back in their land. They're back from exile. But Israel is still waiting for something else to happen. They're still waiting for God to fulfill his promises. The Old Testament ends with a sense of frustration. It's the biography of God. It's the biography of Jesus Christ. It's the biography of God's relation with his bride, Israel. And yet at the end of the day, it doesn't seem that things have worked out as they should have. Uh, as N.T. Wright likes to say, God called Abraham in order to reverse the effects of the sin at Babel and ultimately to refer, reverse the effects of Adam's sin. Abraham is going to be the agent to bring that about, the agent to reverse the effects of sin. And yet, instead of being the agent to reverse the effects of sin, the children of Abraham have become a major part of the problem. That's a central thrust of the early chapters of Romans. All are under condemnation, whether Jew or Gentile. The Jews are not the solution to the problem. They're part of the problem. And if anyone's going to be saved, if the world is going to be saved, and if God's promises are going to be fulfilled, then the sins of Israel have to be dealt with. Israel has to be transformed. The Old Testament isn't quite a tragedy. It's too kind of mundane to be a tragedy. It's not titanic and dramatic enough. Uh, but there's certainly not a comic ending at the end of the Old Testament. It doesn't end with a comic bang or a tragic bang. The Old Testament ends with a kind of whimper. On a slight up note, they're back in the land, but not much of an up note. But the Old Testament also leaves us anticipating that God, the God of Israel, is going to do something else, that this is not the end of the story. Because, and it leads us to that conclusion because the Old Testament not only reveals what God has done throughout history, not only is uh, the biography of God's actions, but it's the biography of God's character. It reveals who God is, and it reveals a God who has a particular character. And that character leads us to expect that he's going to do something about the condition of Israel and the condition of his world uh, at, after he's done all that he's done in the Old Testament. And it actually leads us, I think, to the conclusion that God is going to do the best thing ever once the Old Testament is over. The best thing is yet to come. The Old Testament ends with a whimper, but it ends with hope that the best, uh, the best days of Israel and the best days of God's people are still to come. And that's all based on the way that the Old Testament talks about uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's revealing the character of God, the character ultimately of Jesus Christ uh, in a variety of ways. Well, how is that the case? I've got three points to make here, which I don't think correspond to the points that are on your notes. If you're trying to follow what I'm saying, you probably want to put the notes down. <laughs> the notes were submitted a couple weeks ago and largely composed in the Salt Lake City Airport, so I don't think they're there. So just listen. What does the Old Testament tell us about Yahweh, the God of Israel, that leads us to expect something better is going to happen? 
Well, the first thing it tells us is that God has identified himself, Yahweh has identified himself with Israel. He's identified himself with Israel to the extent that when he's asked his name, he names himself by reference to Israel. It's like calling Doug Wilson Nancy's husband. Okay. When, God, when you ask Yahweh, who are you? He identifies himself with reference to his bride. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't identify himself with some kind of philosophical formula. That's the way that the phrase I am that I am has been taken historically. I don't think in the context that's the main thrust. I think it has to do with his covenant faithfulness, his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not uh, secondary to God's character. God has revealed his name as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's revealed his name as the God of Israel. That's how he identifies himself. Of course, this is, I'm referring to uh, Exodus chapter three, where Moses asks the Lord's name, and the Lord said, I am, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God says to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. He so identified himself with Israel that he has taken on the name of Israel. Of course, Israel takes on his name in various ways too. Israel bears his name, bears the name of Yahweh. Uh, they bear the name of Yahweh in, their, uh, in the circumcision. They bear the name of Yahweh in their festivals. They bear the name of Yahweh as the people who've received the law. And yet on the other hand, Yahweh bears their name. And he's identified himself so thoroughly with Israel that a failure to do what he's promised to Israel is a failure of his own name. If God doesn't do for Israel what he's promised to do, then God's own faithfulness and truth are, uh, I would say, endangered. I don't think that's quite the right word. But his reputation as God is bound up with him fulfilling what he's promised to do with Israel. He's committed all his resources, all his infinite power, all his faithfulness, all, all that he can do, he's committed to fulfilling the promises that he's made to Abraham, that Abraham will have a great name, that Abraham's children will fill the earth, that the nations will be blessed through Abraham, all the families of the earth. God has committed himself so thoroughly to that that he's adopted Abraham into his own name. Now, if God fails to do that, then the name of God is rightly uh, questioned. The character of God is rightly questioned. Is God true? Is God faithful? Is God righteous if he doesn't do what he said he's going to do for Israel? How can he say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What kind of name is that if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't receive what he's promised? That's not a, that's not a name for a God. That's a name, or that's a name for a failed God if he doesn't do what he's promised. He staked his own name on, doing, uh, on being faithful to his promises to Israel. We come to the end of the Old Testament, and this is still the God that Israel is sporadically worshiping. This is still the God whose name Israel declares, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we end the Old Testament with the expectation that this God will not let Israel's death stand. This God will not leave Israel in the grave. This God will not leave any promise unfulfilled because he has staked his own reputation as God on fulfilling those promises. If you can say of Abraham that Abraham has not been blessed, that Abraham's seed has not filled the earth, that Abraham's seed has not brought blessing to, the family, to all the families of the earth, then you can say that God is not God. 
That's how seriously God has committed himself to Israel. But we know from what he's done in the Old Testament that he won't leave that, uh, he won't leave it up in the air. He won't leave it unfinished. He won't leave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with any promises unfulfilled. God is God for Israel. That's who Yahweh is. Yahweh is Yahweh for his people. But Yahweh is also Yahweh with Israel. That's the second thing we learn from the Old Testament. Yahweh is God for Israel, devoting all, he, all that he has and all that he is to Israel's good and to fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he has also promised to be with them. He's not a God who flicks a few switches and pushes a few buttons and saves his people from a distance. He is a God who goes among his people, who dwells with them, who tabernacles among them, who temples among them. That's one of the central promises of the Old Covenant, that God will be with his people, that he will be near them. And so we can expect at the end of the Old Testament, not only that God will do something, but that God will do something that brings him near and that brings him near in an unprecedented kind of way. Under the Old Testament, God was near to his people, but he was also distant. He was nearer than he was, was to other people, but he wasn't immediately accessible. God hid himself behind curtains in the tabernacle and later in the temple. No one could go in. This God is not going to leave that situation uncorrected. He is going to do something, and he's going to do something by coming to his people. He's going to reveal himself in an unprecedented way, not only as Yahweh for Israel, but as Yahweh with Israel. The third thing that I want to focus on, and of course the Old Testament reveals much more than this, but the third thing I want to focus on is the fact that the Old Testament reveals Yahweh to be a God who suffers over and suffers with his people. When Israel opposes Yahweh in the wilderness, Yahweh cries out in anguish that they have pained him. This is from Psalm 78, verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Verse 41 of that same Psalm speaks of uh, uh, Israel tempting God and paining the Holy One of Israel again and again. We see this when, if you look back to the events that Psalm 78 is referring to back in the book of Numbers, you see the same thing. Uh, after Kadesh Barnea, when Israel was supposed to go into the land and conquer it, they refused to go into the land. And the Lord's response to that is to uh, uh, sing a song, as it were, of lament over Israel. Several times he uses the lament formula, how long will this go on? How long will this people spurn me? How long will they, uh, they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. That's a formula that's used throughout the Psalms. When you get to a, if you look at a Psalm of lament, that's the psalmist's plea. How long, O Lord, is this going to go on? How long are these promises going to be unfulfilled? How long are you going to leave me oppressed by my enemies? Aren't you going to do something? Here the Lord takes that lament himself. And this is in a context of the Lord himself punishing Israel. Verse 12, this I was reading from Numbers 14, and verse 12 says, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I'll make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. He's talking to Moses. He's going to smite them. He's going to dispossess them. He's going to bring curses on them like the curses of Egypt. But at the same time, he is pained by their rebellion. He's a spurned lover. He's a father who is utterly faithful to his children, and his children turn away. He's a husband who is utterly faithful to a faithless bride, and he cries out in anguish 
at the rejection of Israel. Nor, these aren't isolated passages. Isaiah 65 says something similar. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not seek for me, the Lord says. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation who did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Jeremiah 3:19. Then I said, how would I, I'm sorry, how I would set among you my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me. Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Those are words of anger. Those are words of wrath, but it's wrath that's provoked by, by jealousy for Israel, by spurned love for Israel. It's wrath that's mingled with the Lord's own suffering and pain over Israel's rejection. Some of the most dramatic passages in the Bible that talk about this, uh, that present the Lord uh, mourning over Israel's rebellion come from the book of Jeremiah. Let me just read a few of these. It's Jeremiah chapter 9. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them and assay them. For what else can I do because of their daughter, uh, the daughter of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow, it speaks deceit. With his mouth, one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly, he sets an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this shall not, I not avenge myself. For the mountains, I will take up a weeping and a wailing, and for the pastures of the wilderness, a dirge, because they are laid waste and that no one passes through and the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts have fled. They are gone. I will make Israel a heap, a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. You notice in that passage, that's in Jeremiah 7 verses, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 9 verses 7 through 11. You notice in that passage that the Lord himself is saying that he's going to turn Jerusalem to a heap of ruins and a haunt of jackals. He's going to turn the garden city into a wilderness. But at the same time, he, the Lord, in verse 10, laments over Israel. For the mountains, I will take up a weeping and a wailing. For the pastures of the wilderness, a dirge, because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. Why are they laid waste? Because Yahweh is angry at his people. And then having been angry and bringing condemnation and judgment to his people, he laments over their condition. He suffers because of their rebellion. He suffers because of the judgments that he does rightly bring on his people. God is not an indifferent to the sufferings that he himself imposes and justly opposes. He imposes. He does both. He brings the judgment and then he laments over the effects of the judgment. This is a God who is involved with his people, who's not at a distance. Uh, we could say he's emotionally involved with Israel. One last passage. This is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20, verse 18 and following, rather. I've surely heard Ephraim grieving. You've chastened me and I was chastened like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares Yahweh. Why is Ephraim distant from the Lord? It's because of Ephraim's sins, but also because the Lord has cast Ephraim off. But when he casts Ephraim off, then he begins to lament and he yearns for Ephraim. He wants his firstborn son back. He wants to be in good fellowship with his son. That's the kind of God that's revealed in the Old Testament. 
Not only a God who is God for Israel and a God with Israel, but a God who suffers as Israel rebels against him, a God who responds with anguish and lament when Israel spurns his love. Now, what is this God going to do? What's going to happen when we turn the page from Malachi chapter 4 to the beginning of the New Testament? The whole trajectory of the Old Testament leads us to expect that God is going to do something, that he's not going to leave Israel in the condition that they're in, that he's not going to leave the world in the condition that it's in, that he's going to do something by coming near to his people. And the passages that I've just been reading suggest that he's going to come near in order to suffer along with and to suffer for Israel. We often think that the incarnation and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is somehow contrary to the character of God, that it's some kind of strange work that God does. I I would submit that the Old Testament doesn't exactly reveal the incarnation, but it seems like the most natural thing in the world for this to be the next step. The God that's revealed in the Old Testament is a God who's going to come near, who's going to take on Israel's pain and suffering on himself in order to bear it away. He's going to take the consequences of Israel's rebellion on himself in order to remove it. The next, uh, the logical next thing for him to do, almost, is to become incarnate, to suffer on the cross, to rise again, to triumph over all sin and death in order to bring his promises to Abraham to their complete fulfillment. This is the kind of God that's revealed in the Old Testament. The God's revealed in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the express image of the Father. And the God revealed in the Old Testament is in character exactly as Jesus is. It's not a different God. There's no disjunction here. It's not a God of wrath and a God of mercy. It's a God who is willing to go to any length, even suffering the sins and death that Israel deserves, the judgment on sin and death that Israel deserves, even to that extent for the sake of his people. As Jesus himself said, the entire Old Testament from Moses through all the prophets is the story of the sufferings and the glory of the Christ. The entire Old Testament is not only biographies, but a biography, the biography of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this revelation of your character in the Old Testament, in the many events of Israel's history, in the revelation of your character as you deal with Israel. We thank you for your utter faithfulness to your people. We thank you that you have so completely identified with your people that you bear our name, the name of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Nehemiah, Jesus, and us. We thank you that our names are written on your heart and that you yearn for us and you will stop at nothing to fulfill your promises. We pray that you would give us great faith as we continue to consider the Old Testament and the great heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. We pray that we would imitate their faith, their confidence in you as the God of Israel, the God for Israel, the God with Israel. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled Histories and Stories, Trinity Festival. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.